0: I'm Matt Booker.
1: I'm Dave Laird.
2: And I'm Lucas Thompson, coming to you from Australia, the land of chicken sexes and tennis players with existentially affronted facial expressions, and you're listening to the Great Concavity. Uh-oh.
1: Lucas, welcome to episode twenty eight, man. Nice one. Thanks very much. Thanks very
2: much <laughs> for having me. It's great to it's great to be here. <laughs> oh, okay. you like to-
0: uh, I is- just have to acknowledge that we've had a lot of technical difficulties getting this call set up from the US, Canada, and Australia.
2: Yeah, we have. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. No. So
0: so dear listener, please
1: appreciate what's about to happen in the next hour or so.
0: <laughs> the other thing I want to acknowledge is our brief time away from the podcast, uh, the past few weeks partly due to a happy occasion, which is the birth of Dave's first child. Yeah. Flannery. Thank you. Yeah. C- congratulations, Dave. It's, it's
2: <laughs> Thanks. Huge. A- Thanks a lot, guys.
0: April 9th. Um, April 9th, yeah. Mother sure. and baby, how are they doing, Dave?
1: They're both healthy, uh, a little tired. I'm a little tired, but otherwise, life's pretty good. No complaints.
0: So <laughs> Flannery's crazy.
1: doing well. She's Flannery. a cool little gal.
0: Flannery. I can't wait to meet her someday. And, yeah, um, just want to say um, cheers to all of you for that. And Yeah, thank you, man. We appreciate that. We're joined today, as you could hear, by uh, <laughs> scholar Lucas Thompson, who is a research fellow at the University of Sydney, Australia. And he is also the author of Global Wallace, David Foster Wallace, and World Literature, which yeah. is the first volume in a new series by Bloomsbury called David Foster Wallace Studies. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us Lucas a little bit about the series and how the book ended up as the first book in the series?
2: Ah, uh, yeah, sure. So this series is is edited by um Stephen Stephen Byrne mm-hmm. um, at the University of Glasgow. Yeah. Um it's got quite a long list of um, sort of editorial board members, advisory board members. um Marshall Boswell's on there, who listeners us surely know yeah, um, Nick yeah. from Belgium, Steve Moore from from the US, um, mm-hmm. Charlie Harris is on there as well, um, Cassia Botti and Paul Giles. Um, so this series was kind of set up um, by Stephen to be this this new home for for really long um, books of Wallace Wallace criticism. Um, and yeah, I think he we we've been talking for a while about scholarship and about Wallace related things, and and Stephen's been a kind of a really um, big champion of my work for a couple of years now so he was really intrigued by by the project and wanted to kick it off with with his book on on sort of wallace and world literature
0: and the book grows out of your research um a lot of it conducted at the ransom center and mm-hmm. the the book is really i would say the best overview of wallace's influences that don't often get talked about was, mm-hmm. was that part of your motivation for writing the book
2: yeah, that's exactly my motivation. I mean, I, I'd sort of um, heard a lot and, and read a lot of stuff kind of, when I was thinking about this, um, about Wallace's relation to American fiction. Um, I mean, writers like Thomas Pynchon and William Gaddis, John Barth, get, get talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But when I was kind of thinking about this project, I, I sort of thought he was being a little shortchanged um, by only being situated in terms of, of US literature. Um, so, I wanted to kind of expand out those influences and kind of and look for more global sources of, of his style um, and the kind of themes that he's, he's writing about all the time. Um, so, I basically, the, the project was basically a, a way of, um, or the methodology rather, was just kind of going, combing through Wallace's interviews, um, the kind of more obscure nonfiction he'd written, mm-hmm. um, and just seeing, taking note of all the names that he mentions. Because um, there are so many non-American authors that he kind of cites and lists as favorite authors or as uh, reference points, um, and I really just wanted to go and go and read all those guys and, and kind of figure out what he was doing with them, whether there were kind of genuine um, substantial points of influence, um, or whether you know, and I thought this could have been a possibility at the start that maybe they were just kind of. There for different reasons. They were trying to signal an interest in, in global literature that maybe wasn't as substantial as um, the American stuff. Um, and I think what I found was was sort of that it's just as substantial as the American influences, if not maybe more in some cases. Um, yeah. And that he really takes a lot of a lot of things um, from from global writers.
1: Hmm. That's cool. You uh you got a pretty pretty interesting uh statement from steven Byrne in the intro that says that you have examined the ransom center in more detail than anyone else tell us about your time at the ransom center and do you think he's right and uh
2: yeah Yeah, that was so that's such a flattering line and i think that's the (laughs) the thing that i'm sort of most happy with about the um his, his many compliments in the um, but yeah, I don't I not know if that's true. I don't think it, it's necessarily <laughs> true anymore. I mean, a lot of writers, Jeff Severs and David Herring yeah. and people like that have, have done extensive sort of studies of the archives as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I did I did really want to make this a book about um, discovering the archival stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent about a month in the Harry Ransom Center over two trips.
3: Wow. Um,
2: about, yeah. yeah, and I sort of it was great sort of connecting with you, Matt, um, mm-hmm. while I was there and hanging out at. Um, some of your favorite haunts around, around <laughs> Austin, which is really amazing.
0: We had fun. Um, yeah.
2: yeah, that was a real highlight of the trip. Um, but yeah, this these two sort of two week or so stints at the Harry Ransom Center. Um, I was just amazed by the richness of, of the material in there. Um, I wasn't expecting to find quite so much. Um, and I combed through almost everything to try and find just any kind of hints um, allusions, kind of passing references, anything I could find to kind of world texts or to non-American fiction. Right. Um, and I was just startled time and time again by the things I found. Um, I was also really amazed by the, the kind of marginalia um, and the writing in the actual books that are in the archive. I, I wasn't quite expecting them to be so richly annotated and detailed.
1: Yeah, that comes um, up quite a lot in your book that you, you comment. Yeah. On. yeah, that's really cool.
2: I was just kind of flabbergasted by like how many stories he's sort of drafting in literally in the margins of other people's work. Mm -hmm. Um, So in like the Flannery O'Connor collections of stories, for instance, that he he owned, um, he was writing kind of these story outlines for things that made it into brief interviews with hideous men and sort of plot lines in infinite jest. Um, So that was all really fascinating to me. It sort of seemed like he was literally sort of writing in the margins and in the lines, in between the lines um, of all these other writers. Um, so yeah that that was a real compliment from stephen and i'm i'm very grateful <laughs> for it yeah
0: yeah I think um your whole thing about world literature, the first chapter of your book is really grappling with that idea of like what is Uh, the state of world literature now and how it could possibly influence um, Wallace I had a question for you about that because you at one point you make um, an argument that Wallace as a reader and a writer he sort of shifts away from American writers maybe while he's in grad school in Arizona and becomes more interested in world literature can you talk a bit about that
2: yeah, I think that's right. I think while at Arizona, one of the kind of the criticisms that he has about the MFA program that doesn't get talked about a lot, um, obviously he's kind of not particularly taken with a sort of a reductive approach to form um, and sort of some of the cliches that get trotted out at, at MFAs. He's, he's not particularly flattering if his teachers and things. Um, but one of the things <laughs> that I think really bugged him about the MFA program um, was just how kind of shallowly nationalistic it is. Um, he sort of has this great line about how there's a whole generation of students doing MFAs who are being brought up to, it's something like, to, brought up to believe that Salinger invented the wheel, um, that Carver um, and Beatty are driving all that's worth chasing, um, where basically it's just like a continuation of American text and nothing outside of that um, ever gets spoken about. Um, so I think that's one of the points at which he starts thinking about this broader tradition. Um and really whether he can locate himself in terms of sort of more global um, literary movements and trends Um, as a way I think of setting him apart from from other MFA students and other contemporary writers, Um, but also as a way of kind of creatively reinvigorating the tradition of American fiction. Um, So I've got the quote here actually, so it's in Fictional Futures and the Conspicuously Young Mm -hmm. um, published in ADA. where he says, and this is the quote I butchered before, he says that international classics such as those written by, quote, Homer and Milton, Cervantes and Shakespeare, Mopassant and Gogol, to say nothing of the Testaments, have receded into the myths of straight lit, while aspiring young writers labour under the delusion that Salinger invented the wheel, updike internal combustion, and Carvey, Beater and Phillips drive what's chasing. Hmm. Hmm. So it's, yeah, there was kind of a different way of kind of, I mean, it's often mentioned that he has these problems with the MFA program and the way that Um, fiction writing is taught in American institutions, but that seemed like an interesting way in um, to thinking about this this project.
3: Hmm.
0: I, I think that's super interesting because it has something to do with the commercialization of it and the ability to sell stories and that someone going in saying they want to write like Borges or Puig is mm-hmm. n- is not going to find the niche uh, in the necessary literary journals to really advance their career in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that leads to more like um, separation between world literatures, and I think that's really you know sad. But um, you know Wallace always said that he took a lot of stuff from Puig, especially in the dialogue and the dot 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 the ellipsis. Um, Right. And I was, so I was really happy to see someone like yourself come along and um, explore that more. Can, can you talk a bit about that chapter you have about Wallace and, and Latin America and the experimentalization of a you know, Puig and Borges?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of a big, a big chapter in the book. And I talk about a lot of Latin American influences. I mean, mm-hmm. I talk a little bit about Octavio Paz, who's, who's cited in the Unimus Plurum a little bit. Um, Julio Cortazar, who Walsh really loved. um Borges, as you mentioned, Matt, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, Infante, um, Reynoldo Arenas, who wrote that novel The Doorman that that Walsh reviewed. Uh, I
0: love that review of of the Doorman. Yeah, it's a great a review. Great review.
2: It's, it's really excellent. I can't believe it's it hasn't been republished somewhere. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it'll see the light of day day somewhere along the line. But yeah, the the Puig stuff was really interesting to me. I hadn't. I hadn't encountered Manuel Puig, who's this famous Argentine novelist. Um, before I started reading Walsh instead of reading these um, these really enthusiastic um, statements that Walls has about Puig's fiction. Um, so <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, a real I, good I, one on,
1: on page fifty two, the one about his prose clicking like a fucking Geiger counter. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> that line that that like combination of words just sounds so nice to me.
2: I know, it's great. It's <laughs> such a will <Wallace> line. <laughs> it's got a good but yeah, I went away and read, I read lots of Puig and I just loved what I found. I mean, novels like The Kiss of the Spider Woman and Betrayed by Rita Hayworth um, are just such masterpieces. And you can kind of see as you're reading them, the, the kinds of things that walls would have been really drawn to. Um, this kind of mixture of, of high and low, of mm. sort of deep the deep infiltration of pop culture, um, the way kind of people's personal stories get narrated via these larger um, filmic and pop-cultural structures. Um, so the Puig was really interesting to me, and I I yeah, I yeah, was thinking about those sort of thematic um, ideas that Wells maybe was intrigued by, um, but it also seemed like there were maybe five or six really, really specific stylistic devices um, that Wells was taking from Puig. So I go into this quite a bit in the book. I talk about, as you mentioned, about the sort of ellipses um, that, that Puig uses all the time, um, and that scholars used to think um, maybe came from William Gaddis, but I think it's, it's more plausible to say they came from Puig. Um, the redacted questions of this sort of unknown interlocutor right.
3: that, uh-huh. that
2: Puig does all the time. Um, and that Wallace very self-consciously, I think, borrows or, or maybe even steals that a little bit from uh-huh. Puig. First and
0: infinite um, jest, too. That I thought that was interesting. It's not just uh, brief interviews.
3: Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And
2: even as far back as... Um, as the Broom of the System. He does that a little bit in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, co- some conversations with Lenore where they used. Um, so he was obviously thinking about that quite early on. I think that um, Andrew Parker at, at Amherst um, got Wallace onto Puig. I could be misremembering that, uh, but I think he, he sort of discovers Puig in the mid-'80s um, via, via this literary professor, Andrew Parker. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so on the stylistic stuff, there's also the, the found text that, that Puig uses all the time. Um, where he'll sort of embed, like, like a found object, but a, a literary version of that. Um, like, a good example is Hal's um, filmic essay in Infinite Jest, uh, oh, okay. which is this, like, um, this essay that he wrote for Mr. Ogilvie's class, I think, <laughs> on uh, a film. Yep. Um, there's also these long monologues to an absent interlocutor that, that Puig does all the time, and that the, the kind of, uh, the garage scene with James Incondenza Sr., Mm-hmm. Um, in <laughs> is a really good example in of, tucson yeah exactly mm-hmm. with the mattress and the yeah the, like the little uh, whiskey and things
3: yeah
2: um, flask. yeah exactly <laughs> so that was that was really interesting to me to find these really really specific stylistic things that Wallace was obviously taking from from Pui. Um and I, I hope that's a plausible argument in the book i mean it seems kind of insanely specific Um, And, like, I'm losing the the forest for the trees in some ways, but um, I really wanted to make that that argument that he sort of takes these very specific stylistic devices as well as, you know, broader thematic things. Yeah.
0: Well, Wallace said as much in, in certain places, but there are some yeah. there are some that you point out, like the Jamaica Kincaid stuff that I don't think right. he, Wallace ever mentioned, at least in an interview, or you know that any other scholars have mentioned. Were there other things like that throughout the book that you felt like you were truly discovering something no one else had?
2: Yeah, there were so many things in the archives that I discovered that I just would never have anticipated finding. Um, I mean, there was a lot of Russian fiction references um, to things like some things that he'd mentioned um, very tangentially in interviews like Daniel Kahn's, this famous sort of Russian experimentalist, sort of modernist experimentalist, Um, but also people like Gogol and and Tolstoy, obviously, who he's talked about. Um, Mm. But the depth of the influence just goes way, way beyond what I think I would have expected and what many other critics expected. Um, and yeah, the Jamaica Kincaid stuff is a good example of that. I mean, he taught, um, Jamaica Kincaid in some, some, um, some of his courses. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of just mentioned in the book that he has, he basically rips off, um, the short story girl, right. um, which is from, uh, Kincaid's collection at the bottom of the river. Mm. Um, and he, he takes, again, he's really interested in the style of that story and the kind of experimental, um, formal structure of it, so he he borrows a lot from that story. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of one example of these these really intriguing and, and somewhat counterintuitive um, borrowings um, that mm. Wallace took from other writers.
0: In the, um, the the Latin American one, you know, I, I wanted to get your opinion on one of the best we mentioned a book review wallace did of the ronaldo arenas um Mm -hmm. book but he also you know later in 2004 wrote this uh, new york times book review of um, williamson's biography of borges Um, Mm -hmm. and can you talk a little bit about how you know borges's fiction you know represented some kind of ideal for wallace or or you know i found that that statement you made in that chapter very intriguing
2: yeah so it's a it's a complicated argument and I'll try and kind of summarize it as best I can um but yeah one of the interesting things I think um for Wallace's fascination with Borges um is that Borges Borges's fiction could could kind of be set anywhere um and there's not I mean there's some Argentine stories that he does early on and there's obviously references to a lot of kind of specific um, Latin American places and, and cultural discourses and things like that. Um, but, but really he's kind of this kind of quintessentially internationalist writer because anyone can kind of latch onto Borges. Um, and you don't really need a specific grounding um, in in uh, you know in the, the history of Argentine literature. Um, and you certainly, I don't think, really need to to be able to speak Spanish to, to be able to get the important things from Borges. Um, so that's, I think, why Wallace finds him so appealing as a figure of world literature, um, because he doesn't require a lot of kind of initial um, linguistic effort or kind of cultural understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's, he's more interested in the sort of formal features, the aesthetic play of Borges' fiction, um, the ideas that Borges sort of instantiates in these in, in short stories and essays. Hmm. Um, and you can kind of get away with that for someone like Borges. And in fact, many um, scholars of world literature um, have, have also kind of replicated that in a way. I mean, whereas they never would have done that for, for other um, global authors, they've kind of excused themselves from doing the work of, of understanding Borges within a particular kind of cultural and historical um, framework. And so one of the things that Edwin Williamson's biography does, and that Walser's, uh review in the New York Times book review takes real issue with, um, is that it, it does embed him in this really, really specific um, material context. And it gives a lot of kind of, obviously, it gives a lot of biographical readings. Um, that I think Waltz is right. Like, they're somewhat insipid. They're somewhat kind of uh, tainted by this sort of overarching psychoanalytic perspective. Um, but one interesting and I think important thing that they do is they situate the kinds of things Borges was writing um, within a really specific context and they flush out a lot of the kind of cultural um, narratives and cultural events that were happening at the same time. And obviously Wallace finds that extremely kind of grating um, because he wants to focus on something else entirely. He's not interested in these kind of specifics sort of, of you know, transnational exchange and things. He's far more interested in the ideas, um, the prose style, um, the kind of pyrotechnics that are happening linguistically, rather than the sort of embedding him within a particular culture, if that makes sense. Mm.
0: And you make the same point about Kafka, right? I mean, Kafka is similar right. in that, um, you know, we, we don't think of Kafka as being a, a necessarily nationalistic writer, but more... Mm. Um, you know, in that in that universal vein, which seems still difficult to replicate for a writer. I mean, what parts of Wallace's writing do you think took advice from those, you know, those other traditions of of being, you know, without a time and place, you know, anchored by it?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, in terms of Kafka, it's it sort of feels like again that's someone who you're right who's very easy to read in that particular kind of way. Um, and Wallace, of course, um, perpetuates that to some degree, although he's, he's partially interested um, in some of the humor and some of the kind of cultural specificity of, of what might have made Kafka's friends laugh in those, in those weird right. kind of accounts of, of him reading. Um, but I think what, what Wallace ultimately took from Kafka was this more kind of um, expressionist idea where it's it kind of, I sort of talk about it in relation to his reading of Lynch, um, where you get these very specific kind of objects um, and kind of weirdly offbeat, slightly uncanny moments um, where you can kind of think about them in terms of like this tradition of, of literary expressionism um, where particular things are kind of embodying these, these deeper emotions and feelings and affects. Um, but also one of the things that Kafka does really well and that, that Wallace clearly borrowed from um, was this notion of literalization, so sort of literalizing and making manifest, kind of concretizing these these really abstract states, um, whether it's an abstract state of, of feeling or some kind of uh, cliché or metaphor um, that hasn't really been given its its um, fair due. Um, Wells is interested, I think, like Kafka, in sort of concretizing those things and seeing how they get expressed. Um, and instantiated in in narratives and in kind of narrative form.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um you could can we go back to the the Russian influence that you mentioned? Um you know, there's yeah. a lot there's a lot in there about Dostoevsky um, and, and Tolstoy to some extent but um, i i was also really intrigued by the fact that you brought up um wallace's non-fiction as having some russian influences can you yeah, expand yeah. on that
2: yeah right um so I'm just trying to remember what I said about the nonfiction fiction <laughs> Well, I've got it. Um, I've got
0: it bookmarked because I, I flagged okay, that. I've got good um, job, uh, Matt. <laughs> <you> know, I, <laughs> as I was reading your book, I flagged. I think I told you I would flagged like tons and tons of pages. So I've got sticky notes all over the place. Oh, um, but you, you mentioned the um, darkly comic aside in Wallace's essay on Michael Joyce, uh, mm-hmm. and something about. Um, he compares the power baseline game to the footage of old Soviet union, putting down a rebellion. He says (laughs) it's awesome, but brutally so with a grinding faceless quality. And, you know, this tennis stuff, um, it it does have a lot of references in there. There's a, there's a reference in the Federer essay, for example, to, um, Baryshnikov Mm -hmm. and, um, Luria, um, from the greatly exaggerated, And then, um, you know, you make the point Stephen Byrne claims that that's, you know, the Luria from Infinite Jest. Luria P. Um, Right. Mm. And you also use Wallace's marked up copy of um, Dennis Johnson's Angels to kind of argue that Wallace had intended for Russia to play a bigger role in Infinite Jest, which Uh, does, you know, it does appear in the um, Eschaton scenes but
2: I, so I, war
0: yeah and then you know there's just a, so much going on there like can you explain a little bit more about that
2: yeah I'm just kind of thinking I think back to that cool. I, yeah right I think I think I just wanted to make the point there um, that whilst maybe had a deeper understanding of Russian culture and um, Russian society than is maybe given credit for I yeah. mean it's beyond the kind of um the, the famous Russian ballet dancer and the the, the rear references, it seemed like maybe there's, there's sort of some argument to be made that he's he's someone invested in, in certain ideas about the Soviet Union and mm-hmm. um, yeah, like you mentioned the self War stuff in in the eschaton scene um, and yeah, I think the idea with the Quebecois terrorists um, was that it's there were certain hints and and yeah, Dennis um, Johnson's Angels was one of them um, where it seemed like he could have almost had russians sort of occupying those roles instead of you know, <laughs> yeah Quebecois. um yeah like it would have been about War, yeah exactly like some sort of um similarly similar kind of separatist movement mm-hmm. i guess mm-hmm. i'm not quite sure what that would have looked like yeah um but <laughs> the, the I think ask that... me
1: fans are blowing the fumes like up over the north pole into like Cy- <laughs> exactly. side and then so we're getting infiltrators from there
2: right exactly
1: <laughs> <laughs> high powered fans
2: well, yeah. you
0: know the, that that reminds me of one other thing though and in, in the in the archives there is this story um wickedness do you hmm. do you remember this story at all this is an unpublished story from like 1999 or 2000 that by wallace? uh by wallace that okay um dt max wrote a thing on the new yorker about it in like 2012 and it it does include a subplot of um russians do you do you remember this at all
2: vaguely yeah that's kind of coming back to me um i don't remember the specifics well there's there's a lot of cool it's about it's about, about a journalist internet,
0: right? yeah it's about the internet it's about a journalist yep. at a site called wicked.com um and then there's just a note at the end of the story about something about an Internet site owned by Russians, which, you know, in light of recent events <laughs> in, in the U.S. is, you know, almost prophetic. Weirdly. Weird. Um, yeah. But I, I think this idea of Wallace coming of age in 1985, you know, when you were talking about Puig, I remember um, – when Kiss of the Spider Woman came out, I think I was in like fourth or fifth grade, right? But <laughs> I remember my parents going to see Kiss of the Spider Woman and it being, you know, nominated for Oscars. And I, I, you know, Wallace at the time was 22. And so he's in 23 and he's graduating college. And that's the height of the Cold War as well. So I think, you know, I found that very interesting that you've got his sort of Cold War, Reaganism, anti you know, a going to war with Russia idea, but he's still reading Kiss of the Spider Woman in
2: 1985. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's so interesting. And that I'll have to get back to that story. Wickedness that the Internet side by Russians is just so fantastic um, and I've kind of forgotten about. But, yeah, I think that plays into that um, sort of idea as well.
0: Mm. Well, and one other thing, I, I I was in the archives recently, and I found some um, letters of Wallace's where he signed his uh, the salutation, or not the salutation. The, the the closing of the letters was he used a Russian term spasiba, which means like "thank you." Huh. I I don't know if you saw any of that, but like he actually used. Occasionally signed off in letters using that like the Russian. Oh, really? (laughs) spassiba when you just like thank you. And I was like, I was like, where is he getting that? Uh Um, And and the other the the other thing I would say about Russian is um, last year when we were dealing talking about um, Infinite Winter. Mm -hmm. um, Dave, you were more involved in this than me, so pipe up, but. (laughs) <laughs> the The guy who ran it, Mark, had an interview with Michael Peach. And yes. in that interview, I remember Michael Peach mentioned that there is a forthcoming translation of Infinite Jest in Russian.
2: Yeah, I've heard that. It's um, There's one, I think he mentions a few that are coming. There's, there's a Russian one he says. Polish, um, Hungarian. And, and Greek as Hebrew well. Hebrew also
1: there's a Hebrew one coming up yeah there is so yeah wow. I noticed so, on page page 24 of your book Lucas that you had like a list of translated work and I was going to say may I also add Hebrew because uh, I spent a couple uh, a couple of years ago we spent some time living in Tel Aviv and there's, there's three published Wallace pieces in Hebrew that I discovered when I was living there and then I talked to a book owner and he said that Infinite Jest is currently being worked on it's kind of a big project uh, into Hebrew so I don't know how, how what the timeline is I've heard nothing else other than from that guy so hopefully he gave me good information but that's the word on the street
2: <laughs> wow yeah I had no yeah. idea that's a that's a real oversight in the book um, but <laughs> well no I don't think
1: it's an oversight I just think I only know that because I talked to one book owner bookstore yeah, I've never television. seen any references to, yeah, so. to
2: Hebrew translations of all. that's fascinating yeah yeah, so no, there's a it,
1: supposedly fun thing in Hebrew. There's um, girl with curious hair in Hebrew, and there's brief interviews with Hideous men in Hebrew. And I bought the wow. I bought brief interviews just kind of as like a souvenir. I clearly can't read any of it, but it. First of all, it had like the most bitchin' cover I've ever seen uh, for any Wallace book. Um, but also, what's like, the, what's they, the cover? It's like a it's like a guy's chest in black and white, like a skinny kind of dude. And he's got this tattoo of like a buck knife, with, like a like kind of like a circle around it, like a halo-ish kind of thing. Oh, wow. it's really, really nice. I'll send you guys pictures of it later. That's um, great. Yeah, but so like Israel is is down with Wallace, and it was funny. One of the a woman that we rented our first Airbnb from, we ended up becoming quite close with their family and they invited us to their, to their house several times and they all like everyone in the family really liked Wallace. And so I still kind of keep in touch with them a little bit about some of that stuff. So it was like, okay, this Wallace's reaches has gone to places that I never would have really anticipated. Um,
2: That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Do you know much about how he's being kind of received in in Hebrew?
1: Um, I think that, so, I mean, I guess there's, It's a complicated country, I suppose we could say, but of people in Israel who are kind of a little bit more leftist in their thinking, Wallace seems to land very well with them. Um, You know, because Israelis, to some extent, have a very conservative government and they've had to be, uh, in a lot of ways, very like protectionist of their land and their culture and all that kind of stuff, too. So. Um, I'm not sure he'd land well with like really conservative Israelis necessarily, but um, I think for people living in say Tel Aviv, which tends to be quite a secular place um, and a quite quite a bit more like per- socially progressive uh, place, that seems to be the case that he's landed well with them. Huh. Yeah. I've always
2: I've always wondered whether Edgar Carrot, um, who's a writer I really like, has has come across Wallace.
1: Oh
3: yeah.
2: Um, because they seem to have some sort of similarities, and oh, yeah, yeah I'd, be, I'd be curious to know whether he's he's Redwall's or mm-hmm. he knows his name. Yeah, what's
0: that writer's name? Ed- Edgar Carrot. I, I wrote okay, is Israeli? Yep. Cool. Yeah. Hmm. Can, can I ask you a, a general question about your um, approach in the in this book, Lucas? Is that you know when you um, put the words "world literature" on the front of the book? And and then I open the book, and right from my perspective, I see there's chapters about the U.S. South and about race and hip hop, and I'm yeah. thinking like, well, that's that's not world literature to me. Cause I love, <laughs> but from Australia, I'm like that that is you know very. Uh, so it made me curious. Like I know you're part of the United States Studies um, Center in Sydney, and I, you know I'm always interested whether it's the UK, Australia, or some other country of how they view the U.S. as like American studies. Um, and you know, since you have been here and spent time in the U.S., you know, can you speak to that a little bit as your perspective from Australia of Wallace as an American writer and like a world writer?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, that that is kind of a strange thing when you open up the front page, um, and it's like broken down to like, yeah, there's a chapter on Wallace and world literature that kind of sets up the the argument a chapter on Wallace in Latin America, Wallace in Russia. And then you're right, mate, you get to these these slightly more unexpected chapters where it's it's about Wallace in the U.S. South. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, I missed Wallace in Eastern Europe, so that's the Kafka chapter. But right. then, yeah, Wallace in the U.S. South, and then kind of this chapter I've got African-American appropriations, race, hip-hop, and popular anthropology. Um, so I would say that that's, that's not my kind of weird understanding of, like, oh, like, oh, the U.S. South seems like a, a piece of world literature. Anyway. Its own
1: country or something.
2: Um, yeah, exactly. But I, I wanted to experiment and, like, and push the kind of boundaries of what we consider world literature to be a little bit in this book. Um, because as, as much as I've kind of set it up as, as kind of in the framework of, of world literature scholarship, i I far from saying that Wool's was kind of a paragon of, of that kind of approach. I mean, many of the critics that I talk about in this book who, who are world literature um, you know, professors and things, um, so people like David Damrosch and Wachie Dimmick, um, Dilashani Kupan, people like this, um, would all kind of have huge problems, I think, with how Wallace um, appropriates and reads um, texts from other countries. Mm. Um, so, you know, first of all, like, he's, he's not reading them in the original. He's kind of relying on translation. Um, he's not, as I mentioned before, particularly interested in sort of the cultural and political dynamic of these books. Um, So Damrush has this this nice little line about the kind of duty of of reading world literature sort of faithfully and and in good faith is to find some sort of middle ground between what he calls the twin perils of exoticism and assimilation. Mm -hmm. So exoticism on the one hand being this idea that, oh, you know, a, a book from Argentina is just so other, it's so exotic, it's so kind of alienated from from me that I just want to kind of fetishize it as a as a distant object. Um, that's sort of one peril, he says. And assimilation is just the idea that oh, it's it's pretty much just American fiction just in another language or something. Um, it's it's recognizably like like me and like I am. Um, so Wallace, I think, makes if I could call them, it feels weird to kind of call them mistakes, but I think Wallace makes both of those mistakes um at certain points in his reading um and doesn't exactly try and do the right the really kind of rigorous um ethically sort of meticulous readings that that some of these critics might might prefer um which is just to say that you know an artist an artist's interests and an artist's sort of obligations are very different from from those of critics right which which seems kind of um obvious um but i think that's that's the way you get around it to say that you know Walsh's aim um was to try and kind of reconfigure and reinvent um american fiction and he did that by whatever means he could one of those ways just happens to be kind of casting about and and looking for kind of particular formal techniques and, and stylistic idiosyncrasies um that come, come from other literary traditions um so that that's kind of a, a a long-winded way of answering the first part of that question, um, but then in terms of, I wanted to think about what kind of Wallace's literary map um, in a global sense maybe looks like, um, because he does do these these kind of really interesting pairings um, and sort of unexpected kind of um, conglomerations of countries. So he talks a little bit in everything and more, the Infinity Book about sort of. His construction of Asia and the Islamic world which he seems which I talked about a little bit which he seems to sort of weirdly lump together um, <laughs> he has a very strange understanding of what Eastern Europe is so that I explored that a bit in the kind of Kafka chapter um, so he I think he's sort of playing with some of these national boundaries a little bit in the way he thinks about um, other traditions but then I the wanted the porousness to say of
1: certain borders mm-hmm.
2: exactly right it's as really Jeff Seavers would say. <laughs> exactly. Um, and in terms of the Eastern, um, the, the existentialism stuff, I, I wanted to kind of, you know, Wallace is a northerner, right? Like he's, he kind of traveled to the South, I guess. But, um, I wanted to argue that, you know, for most Northerners of his generation, like the South is pretty much a foreign country, um, Mm -hmm. in a, in a kind of weird way. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially when you throw something like French existentialism, existentialism into the mix, um, and what Wallace was really interested about about Southern fiction is, is people like Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy yeah.
3: um,
2: who were taking these very European ideas um, and kind of Americanizing them, um, giving them this sort of Southern twist. Um, so that's that was the kind of justification there. Um, and then in terms of the kind of the final chapter on race and hip-hop and popular anthropology, um, that was a way of thinking about all these references to Joseph Campbell, this kind of Right. Um, you know, pop anthropologist um, from the mid 20th century mm-hmm. um, whose vision of the world was found really attractive, I think kind of this idea that the myth and ritual structure, you know, global um, cultures in, in very similar ways um, that you can kind of allied certain cultural differences to see the kind of broader underlying structures um, beneath them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this very structural view of race and ethnicity and culture that um, but I think, yeah, that's that's kind of how I want to frame that part of the, the kind of world literary approach. Does that make any sense at no, all?
0: No, absolutely. Uh, I do want to follow up with you, though, about the question, you know, that um, Wallace as a reader, I found that really interesting and that, you know, his approach to world literature, right? He's not reading in the original languages, but like how many of us really are, uh, yeah. especially if you're not pursuing like a PhD on a certain angle on world literature or sure. you're required to but I mean do you think what what is the future of that for readers you know do you I, I'm asking you to speculate really broadly here but like do you think there will be more or less translation because it seems like at least in the US we haven't greatly increased the demand for translation in the past you know 30 years it's still only like something three percent of fiction published in the u.s is translated
3: huh yeah cool which is value.
2: really ex- extraordinary and, and baffling um <laughs> and what's wrong think with it's... you guys matt
0: <laughs> i'll take responsibility <laughs> for all american readers sure uh, you will. but i i mean <laughs> I, I personally buy more than that. but i'm also hopeful that you know the, b- I was, you know, reading before there was such a thing as Google Translate, and I would love to see some more automation brought into it that's not just total crap, you know, if that gets better, and, you know, Google Translate or something like that is perfected, then it, you know, will it ever open it up to, you know, greater literary worlds that we just don't have access to?
2: Yeah, I mean, how many people do you know, Matt, that kind of read regularly, kind of uh, fiction that's, that's translated. I mean, oh,
0: I live in a weird bubble. So, <laughs> I mean, I know people who translate and, you know, booksellers who mostly read translated fiction. I, I'm the exception. I would say most people, it's very, very small who are even conscious of it.
2: Yeah. I, it seems similar in Australia, actually. We're, we're kind of, as a culture, very kind of patriotic about how kind of big Australian novelists and essayists. Right. Mm-hmm. um and i would I would imagine it's a little, a little bit more i'd hope it's a little bit more than three percent i don't know the statistics um but yeah I, I doubt it's that much better in australia mm-hmm. um in terms of people sort of engaging with with global fiction although the the kind of recent rise of of people like call and is is maybe mm-hmm. there's there's always exceptions i guess yeah that, that's, yeah. that's a whole
0: nother podcast right there yeah you should um, just start yeah, another one this, though, I'm, about, I'm in um <laughs>
2: Book You're five. a big fan right
0: yeah I'm a huge fan um yes, but, your boy but he's also, I would say you know, this is tangent, but he's also I would say being criticized some of the same you know gender stuff that Wallace is being criticized for right now. so it's like I really yeah. don't want to even say that I'm a fan because I feel like it's kind of <laughs> toxic uh, uh, yeah. but I'm gonna quote from something going back to the thing about the idea of world literature in your first chapter. Um, I underlined a quote that I th- thought was fantastic. You said, um, equally palpable is the sense that even in its future manifestations, a scholarly field delineated as world literature is an impossible dream.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, um, yeah, I guess that's my pol- polemical sort of aspect <laughs> coming on. Um, but I think I want to say there that, yeah, there's something about, you um, world literature itself as the way it's sort of currently formulated um where it's kind of like compared the old school sort of comparative literature on acid really um mm-hmm. like to do it well you need to speak sort of you know 10 to 12 other languages um, <laughs> you need to engage like really really critically in the kind of the cultural atmosphere that these works came out of um you i mean to read some of these writers um even like rebecca volkovitz and and Wachidemic, you get the sense that you almost need a PhD um, in, say, like you know, late 17th century German uh, literature to read like one particular poem or something. Like it's just this absurdly um, rigorous um, demands that, that only a few kind of professors can ever really meet. Um, and there's a there's a kind of I write about this sort of latent utopianism. Um, in the field, and and sort of many critics have have accused David Damrosch of um, where there's sort of this idea that um, you know there's there's like this noble idea of world literature scholarship that's sort of about sort of bringing people together and celebrating the best of humanity um, <laughs> that that is a little bit sort of nebulous and waffly, I think. Um, so I sort of I pit that against the kind of as a way of kind of, apolog- of being an apologist. Or sort of justifying in some ways Wallace's approach, um, which is really nothing like that at all, um, and is in, in fact quite quite the opposite. Um, cool. Well, the spectrum.
0: you know, to follow up on that, that that raises an interesting point because, uh, as we just mentioned, Wallace has been translated into a lot of other languages, and you know, I could mention also like Norwegian and Finnish. I know he has books in uh, all the Scandinavian languages and volkowitz rebecca volkowitz her her latest book makes the argument that there are certain types of fiction that are like born translated and that they they translate very easily and quickly and they spread like wildfire and she uses like bologno as a as a maybe even a better example than wallace um but I, you know i'm in and Knausgard is a good example right that that uh, english you know, French, Italian is it immediately translated as quickly as it comes out. Um, you know, what's your take on on that as it pertains to you know world literature?
2: Yeah, that's so interesting. And that that new Volkmann's book is great on, on that particular question. Tim Parks, um, this other scholar, I love and, him. Sort of brought it. Yeah, oh, you like it. Yeah, agree. He, he writes for um, the
0: New York Review a lot. Yeah.
2: Exactly, and he's got some great books in there from sort of four or five years ago about exactly the thing that Volkovitz is talking about. Um, He's got this piece called The Dull New Global Novel um, where he sort of, um, you know, laments the fact that there are so many English language books that that seem to be sort of dumbed down sort of linguistically so that they can be translated really quickly. And I think he he includes like Salman Rushdie and uh, actually I think he, he kind of, Goes on about the New Zealand novelist Eleanor Catton, whose book *The Luminaries*. I actually liked
0: a, that book, you know. But, yeah, I like uh,
2: that as well. But yeah. he sort of he he latches onto that as as being this this particularly egregious kind of <laughs> book where, like, you don't get any style, you don't get any real linguistic nuance. It's it's all just about plot points and character developments, and and so it's easier to translate in some ways. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Peter Carey, I would put in that <laughs> same book. But... Yeah, he
2: he could fit that as well in some ways. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting in, in terms of Wallace's stuff because Wallace has had all this kind of international success. And as you say, he's been translated into so many different languages. And there are more and more readers around the world coming to his stuff all the time. Um, but he actually thought that his stuff was impossible to translate. And there's these really interesting conversations with um, translators, particularly the the Italian translators, Mm -hmm. um, which has a lot of kind of um, correspondence records in the archives and things. Um, So tell
0: tell me about it, because I got to I got to interject here and just say this is um, this very topic is the source of my one personal in-person disagreement with David Foster Wallace.
2: <laughs> oh wow, tell tell Please us. Tell us um, you mentioned
1: this briefly on the show but you So, didn't
0: really so the his Italian translators are, he's hugely popular in Italy and has been for, you know, almost 20 years. Okay. And um the people who published him first in Italy, uh minimum facts at the time owned by my friends martina and marco um they were some of the first i think maybe the first to publish wallace in a different language oh, cool. and, You're right. and um like i say became friends of mine because when i lived in new york at the time and they came to new york frequently um and we had events with david foster wallace there and other writers who they published that were hot american writers it was just very hip in italy to read these young yeah, american writers. It seems
1: that way. I get that impression of art.
0: Um and so there was one occasion in which Martina, whose, you know, correspondence is in the archive, Martina Testa, and uh, and Martina's like I say been my friend for 20 years, she asked me to give Wallace some questions when she was translating Girl with Curious Hair. And so I did and I had this very dispute that you're talking about which is Wallace said um you know a lot of this he was like, Oh God, you know, more questions about these stories that he <laughs> that he wrote in you know, he wrote these in grad school when he's like twenty-six, right? Twenty five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of it's just voice exercises. He just wanted to get a book done. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, someone asking him twenty years later about details of one sentence just excruciate every translator is asking him the same questions you know what does this mean what does that mean uh-huh. uh, and so a lot of our translators actually ended up on on the Wallace listserv asking these questions but I I made the argument to him I said you know nothing is really untranslatable to me and in you know they translated Finnegan's awakened to Japanese uh, <laughs> yeah. so like
1: I, does is there a certain kind of hubris a little bit yeah to say to say, say that um, like my work is untranslated
0: yeah that's what I was like calling him on and yeah you know, he was didn't like that at all um but t- <laughs> <laughs> to his credit it later wrote me a letter of apology which most people would not do but
1: oh did um, he really do you well, still I, do you have that letter like nearby can you read it for us i still well, have it well, i personal. still have it it's not it's not <laughs> nearby sure. but i still
0: have it of course um and, and i i think this is a you know a huge issue like i say that wallace dealt with for most of his writing life so, I mean, what, what is your take on that? Like uh, things being untranslatable, clearly those letters in the archive attest to the fact that some things are difficult to translate, right?
2: right. Definitely. Um, and some of the voice and some of the references that he talks about in those letters, there's, there's some great, um, yeah, the Muth Martini attested there's some stuff in the interview and I've had some, some correspondence with her as well. She's been fantastic. But Adelaide, an Italian translator called Adelaide Cioni as well, there's some correspondence Wallace has with her that's really sort of revealing. Um, I think they're talking about uh, these, these references from memory and in incarnations of burned children. Yes. Where he sort of, right. He's referencing a country music lyric. He
0: says the, the whole, violence. he says the whole story is country music lyrics. <laughs> and I was like, how
2: is this possible? Yeah. I think I found a few, but I, I can't find that as many as he seems to think there is. Um, right. So yeah, they're talking about these these lyrics and whether it's ever possible to kind of like how you would even go about thinking about an Italian pop song that you're sort of playing off linguistically and sort of alluding to. Um, and the, just the whole sort of impossibility and absurdity of that sort of Sisyphean task um, is so interesting. But yeah, I mean, it, it does seem a little hubristic. I think you're right, Dave, to, to assume that you know, it's just in, like my work is too linguistically complex to be translated. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time there there are certain passages where you just you feel great sort of sympathy and, and pity for the poor people that oh, my have to goodness. render these in different languages. Yeah. Because
1: there's a could, lot of you,
2: argot, right? Exactly. And you could preserve the essence of some of that, but or the flavor of it, but getting the yeah. actual specifics must just be an absolute nightmare. Yeah, I know that like, Ulrich, Ulrich Blumenbach, who is the German translator of Infinite Jest and I think a lot of other... Um,
0: Pell King, he did the Pell King.
2: He did the Pell King as well, exactly, yeah. Um, He's sort, of, he sort of on record in these interviews in German press saying, like, you know, he asked, he reached out to Wallace time and time again, but he just refused to help him um, <laughs> because he thought that the project was so absurd and, you know, you could never do justice to, to it in German. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's so many interesting moments like that where Wallace really puts his foot down. So, yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat not surprised about that, that exchange we had. That, that's really fascinating.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I think that there was a time, let's go back and say the 1950s and 1960s, where translators worked in a true bubble and they worked without the Internet and they worked with a dictionary and their own knowledge and occasionally they would write a letter to an agent or an author and ask some questions, but most of the time not. And the fact that you know Ulrich Blumenbach or um, Janis Gerlant, the Dutch mm. translator, all Martino, all of these folks have posted, um, Catano Galindo in Brazil, they've all posted on our listserv with specific questions about how to translate certain phrases, and they can sort of tap in now, through the internet through email and ask these questions about how to translate certain things so I think translation has gotten better in some ways but you know for me the concerning part is that it hasn't changed much in terms of the market demand for it Uh, and and I think that that's what's got to change in order to make it truly better and exceptional so uh, you know I'm curious if you think you know, there, there is potential. Cause in your first chapter, you do, like I say, you deal with this pretty extensively and this idea of world literature is supposed to be a utopia, but it's worked out to be more of like really disjointed, you know, dystopia.
2: Yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's too much at the mercy of sort of the movement of global capitalism, capital and sort of these, these rising trends of globalization, um, where basically the market just dictates um, what works and what sells it's not necessarily always kind of these loftier notions of artistic value or what is actually sort of interesting um, to to translate um, cross culturally, but yeah, I mean, the U.S. like there's a lot of um, American writers who get translated abroad, as as you know, and um, a massive industry in, in translating contemporary American fiction, but there's there's very little sort of corresponding sense of the American reading public really hankering after like the latest. You know, Yugoslavian novel, or like a <laughs> you know, German novel. It's you know, not quite um, uh, bi directional in that way.
0: Well, I, I'm hopeful that there will be more of it. There, At least in the past few years in the US, we've had new publishers spring up who just do literature and translation or focus on that. Yeah. So um, Deep Vellum is a good one in Texas, and um, Restless Books in Brooklyn. So I, I'm hopeful that there's more. Effort, and I'm sure that our current um, political regime will put a lot of money into literature and translation. So we've we've got that going for us. Um, (laughs) So uh i you know my my one of my like last sticky notes in the book before you wrap up the um hip hop section, which I really loved by the way um, oh, thanks. one of my one of my last questions for you is about um you know if you had time to write even more or explore even more what do you what do you think are some of kind of the edges of infinite jest kind of um influences that you didn't have time to explore in this book?
2: Oh golly, there are so many, um, and really, this this book is, is in many ways just scratching the surface. I mean, I've tried to get as many intertextual references and do as much kind of deep textual excavation as I possibly could, um, but I know for a fact that I've I've missed out on a lot of stuff that 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 is in Wallace's text that I just didn't have time to get to. So, volume
0: all. two is coming soon, right? <laughs>
2: Um, I mean, maybe. <laughs> yeah. There's there's so much more to explore. and, and I. But I, what I really hope is that, that people will kind of um, take up different lines of argument. I mean, someone might be really interested in Octavio Paz, say, um, and want to kind of run with that a little bit more, as, as he's kind of um, used in, in novels like Infinite Jess and some of the early essays. Um, I mean, there are lots of Eastern European... Um, novelists and poets and short story writers that I only, you know, just kind of hinted at that, that, that I think could be really productive. Um, but that's, that's kind of one of the things I like about the state of Wallace criticism at the moment that it, it sort of genuinely feels like a collaborative enterprise, um, in the, yeah. you know, people will sort of, you know, throw out, throw out some ideas, um, and someone else will run with them maybe farther than, than the original person anticipated or a slightly mm-hmm. different direction, um, but it feels like there's sort of a community of people who are, who are sort of all kind of interdependent in, in certain ways and, yeah. and wanting to kind of, yeah, run with other people's ideas a little bit, explore them in, in slightly different ways. So yeah. I, I hope that, that, look, that you know there'll be people who sort of see a reference to so I don't know Pablo Neruda or Carlos Fuentes or even Jamaica Kincaid or something, right. um, and what to kind take that further than I've done here yeah. and sort of expand on it in, in various ways. So yeah, yeah. In, in short, there's there's lots and lots of stuff that yeah. I wish i had more time to go into, but just just didn't quite didn't mm. quite get there in this particular book.
1: That's cool. It strikes me that that the very thing that you were just talking about is something that I that struck me that you did really well in this book was your in your section on Russia and how you take up a uh, Canadian scholar, Tim Jacobs's arguments about Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov. And oh, you just, and, and J. You J. just yeah. like unpack that hardcore. So like he gives us the seed and then you just really expanded on it in a cool way. Yeah, he's great. He I actually emailed him before I started my master's and was like, Hey, I'd really like to do some grad work on Wallace. Can you recommend any schools or like places in Canada that would be good for me to, to inquire with that about? And so, He's like, actually, you're in Kelowna. There's like, I know some profs there who would be great to work with. So, and he actually taught in Kelowna for a while, and a friend of mine took a class with him and stuff. So,
2: oh, wow, that's really yeah.
1: cool to hear. Yeah, yeah. I, he never of... him in person, but I think he's out in Toronto now, and he's not really doing like anything. He's not doing like
2: scholarship he's... work. I think he's left academia and he's doing something yeah. else, but yeah, he's like he's, writing he's... for several websites, I think, is what he meant. Okay, yeah, right. That's so, cool.
0: Tim and I go <laughs> way back, by the way. Right. Oh, I, that so that, yeah. we we hung out in 2009 at the um, CUNY conference, the one day footnotes conference in New York. In New York, right? Uh, but I well. mean, it, I had known him and you know for ten years before that. Oh, so I mean, he and right. I he and I have long correspondence. Um, so I mean, I, I've all he has a great essay right after Wallace passed away in 2008 called "The Fight." Uh, and I think it was in Rain Taxi. And if, if ha- a great piece. If yeah. you haven't read that piece, that's, that to me, I mean, I think his stuff, his dissertation on Wallace is, is phenomenal, but that piece, The Fight, is also something I think about a lot. Hmm.
2: His criticism and his essays are so good as well. I mean, the stuff he did on Gerard Manley Hopkins and, and the Dostoevsky stuff, mm-hmm. he's got a great piece on Stenhal um, that is really worth reading as well. I think I feel like he's one of these people that really made me want to try and become a literary critic and see if mm, I can cool. sort of match that high level of, yeah.
1: of literary
2: analysis. So yeah, I think, he's hugely inspiring. For
1: me. Yeah. I think it was even just his master's thesis, right? The piece on Dostoevsky. No, that, that was his PhD. Uh, oh, is it a dissertation? Okay. Yeah. For some reason I thought it was a, a, and so when I was like writing my own, master's thesis, I was like, well, this, this is nearly not as good as Tim Jacobs, so I don't know if I'm going to pass. But that makes me feel way better, Matt, so thank
0: you. Well, I, and you know, I want to say that Lucas, before this book came out, you know, I've been following Lucas's writing uh, since I think you published your first journal piece about seven years ago. Oh, yeah. Right. And, and I definitely kept an eye on your work, because I found like each one of your articles was something that Um, people saved and you mentioned the Wallace community where I think it is unique in that you have a lot of Wallace fans who actually read the criticism um, which is is rare for a lot of you know literary studies but but one of your you know one of your pieces that is fairly recent I really loved it was in the Cormac McCarthy journal and the title of it is like books are made out of books and and I thought that that could have also been like the title of this book and yeah. uh, your your global Wallace book is very much a testament to the fact that you know Wallace is not working in a bubble. He's got context and influence, and his books are made out of these other books. Yeah, thanks.
2: That's really nice of you to say, it. and I'm glad you enjoyed that piece. I Love that. Because um, yeah, I feel like that that could have well very well have been the title of this book. I mean, I'm <laughs> always I've always been really interested in, in like the question of literary influence. Um, and the ways in which writers kind of build on previous projects, and it's 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 kind of a different notion of originality, I think, and innovation, um, where it's very much dependent on on what's gone before, and sort of reconfiguring and code scrambling previous texts, and kind of, and that's that's one of the things I wanted to do in in this book as well, is kind of think about different metaphors we have of describing literary intertextuality. I mean, I really dislike harold bloom and i spent
0: <laughs> ditto i mean yeah,
2: it's the ideas in the anxiety of mm-hmm. influence that i really take issue with as well as some other stuff that he does that is just ridiculous but i think i try to make the argument that wallace really didn't like that idea of literary anxiety of influence either um and that it kind of repelled him in certain ways because it's it's based on this really kind of masculine notion of competition um where it's like there's this huge egos at stake and you're sort of constantly wrestling to kind of overcome someone else's influence and I just feel like that metaphor is kind of well and truly run its course and it doesn't it doesn't really describe what writers like Wallace are doing um, which is something very different from that that whole model so over the course of the book I try and think about different metaphors we could I could kind of use to describe um, the relation well the relationship Wallace has to his predecessors um, in terms of kind of building and appropriating and kind of g- quoting and glossing. Um, so, yeah, that was very much a concern, and that's something that's kind of always on my mind, these, these kind of deep questions of, of literary influence.
0: Well, I think you've handled it extremely well, and especially in this book, it's going to be invaluable to all future Wallace scholarship. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I want to thank you, you know, very much for writing it and for... Yeah, coming on the show today
2: no thank you so much for having me thank you so much for reading it. it's it's fantastic to hear your responses yeah. thank you
1: yeah that's awesome do you have any insights for us lucas about what uh, we might be able to expect from the david foster wallace studies series in the future do you have any like insider information about what what kind of books and things we can expect from that series
2: uh, i wish i did are I mean, you at liberty I... to say yeah, I've kind of been sworn to secrecy. On <laughs> oh, okay, the cool, couple. cool. But but I, it it's really exciting, I think. And it, there will be kind of these these really interesting books that come out of the series. Or can um, you say so
0: I, can you say what you're doing next? What is your next project?
2: Um, I've got a few kind of things on the on the boil, um, and I'm doing a lot of teaching at the moment. So I'm kind of finding it finding it difficult to kind of get yeah. back to research. But but in terms of Wallace stuff. Um, I presented a paper on Wallace's screenplay for the Bremen System a couple of years ago at, at the Wallace Conference. I remember um, where, it. I where saw you guys that were, panel. That? Yeah, that's where really yeah, nice. so, yeah, so I'm, I'm still trying to, like two years later almost, um, yeah. try to you know think more about Wallace in relationship to, to American film, particularly in terms of experimental filmmakers um, mm. who kind of make it into Infinite Jest, people like Hulse Frampton, Stan Brakhage, Maya Darren. Um, what Wallace kind of took from them in terms of like literary transplantations of, of sort of these experimental film ideas um, and also just like the material history of that screenplay or the treatment rather for the... For what, the a, film what a system. waste of
0: time though. I mean, I feel like every time I think about that, I'm like, damn Wallace, you just wasted a lot of time on that.
2: Yeah, I think that's how he thought as well. He kind of spent <laughs> six months trying to write this film and get off the ground and it just didn't really work um if i sure, recall sure. Did,
0: didn't you like have a paper on something else accepted and then you just changed and gave that other paper
2: <laughs> yeah i think i was going to talk about like eastern european yeah. stuff and uh-huh. yeah you're like, I, I like no nah, i don't worse, want to so. do
0: that you're like i want to do this <laughs>
1: i'll just save it for like a for a monograph that i'll write in a couple years <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah guess yeah. i didn't think this would be a monograph maybe like a, an article <laughs> um, but yeah, I think because Terry Gilliam was like the supposedly going to be the director of that film, which he was is attached so, to it, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. I think he, he maybe was yeah financially attached, or they mm. were kind of pitching it to him. But Crazy. yeah, so hopefully something on that soon. But I'm working on something sort of more about contemporary American fiction more broadly. Mm. Um, that yeah, sort of the next the next book project hopefully. Cool. Yeah.
1: I wonder if you can give us like a quick kind of like rundown of the the Wallace scene in Australia these days because I, I mean I've met a lot of Australians who keep coming to these Wallace conferences in Paris and Illinois, and it seems to me that you guys have like a pretty robust scene going on down there. Um, and as part of that, we also want to mention the Oz Wallace Conference coming up, which you are giving the plenary address at September first through third in Melbourne.
2: Yeah, um, I'm so excited about them.
1: Yeah, that's cool. And David Herring setting down for the keynote. Give us a Yeah. Tell us a bit about Australia.
2: Um I I live in such a small little bubble in Sydney. So I really only <laughs> know like the people who work on this stuff at, at Sydney University and like
1: okay, at, that...
2: at a couple of the other institutions around. But yeah, it seems like there's a lot of people down in Melbourne yes. um, who I'm really looking forward to meeting. I think kind of all connected through through to McMillan, who's, yeah. who's organizing the conference. Um, and I've never met them or had much to do them, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to kind of um, touching base with them.
1: Yeah. Um, have you ever met up with Nick Maniatis in Canberra?
2: I, I'm so ashamed to say that I never have. <laughs> I, I honestly can't believe it because I've kind of emailed him for, for a number of years and yeah, but... he's i really want to meet him and i just i don't know we just never go to canberra and oh, I've even him. though it's like i've met him. two and a half <laughs> i have yeah, really.
0: i have in new york 2009 again oh,
2: so. all for the conference yeah. the he came to that yeah, right. yeah. yeah of um, course yeah uh the,
0: and and there's also it just seems like any english speaking you know university now has someone who has done an ma or a phd on wallace yeah. Uh in in, yeah. in the UK and you know, in Ireland, in a lot of countries in Europe and and now in you know, Australia has a lot I I would say, you know, because Nick being there, you know, and the the Howling fantods being there, I think he is also responsible for a lot of Australian general interest in Wallace. Yeah, I'm sure that's true.
2: I think that's right. There's a lot of people I mean when I first started Reading Wallace, it was so hard to find anyone who'd even read an essay by Wallace, let alone oh, yeah. a piece of fiction. Oh. Um, but now they're, you know, they're a dime a dozen. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I, think, Ditto. I think it's responsible for that, which is amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hmm.
0: And I know we've got other folks down there in Adelaide and Flinders and all, all over Australia. Oh, yeah, you know, of course. Yeah. Uh, which is fantastic. Great. But, um, I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, Lucas. I've really appreciated this conversation. Um, do you have anything final you want to say that we've skipped over about the book, or in general about you know Wallace studies?
2: No, I mean I think we've kind of covered yeah a lot of what I what I was kind of hoping to cover. Cool. Um, <laughs> I guess I was just quickly interested. If I can ask, if okay. I can just kind of flip it back to you guys, I'm kind of really intrigued by this sort of recent sort of. Backlash in many quarters against mm. Wallaces fiction oh, from yeah, this is <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, I was, go, I, was gonna, I was gonna
0: I was gonna ask you about this because I think you know you <laughs> have a really um, sophisticated take on Wallace in this book so I'm curious I, I was I had that on my list to ask you today believe it or not. It
1: said it did get brushed yeah. over earlier. There was a, there was a minor reference to that. Yeah.
2: So it feels like another can of worms opening at this late point in the conversation. But yeah, yeah I, I, I feel like we really... could do a
1: whole episode on that.
2: I know a whole like series. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was so I interested in like so interested in how you guys kind of perceive that whole recent back, particularly in terms of of gender studies, kind of
1: yeah.
2: um, gender questions, and but also race um, and yeah. Yeah, I just wonder if this is a it's a, it feels like a slightly different moment for Wallace's reception. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you guys had any kind of insights on...
1: Yeah. Yeah, for me, it was like a little bit... It's been a little bit discouraging in the last couple of weeks because in my personal experience of uh, people that I know who read Wallace and who think about Wallace, like people from the conference and even just friends of mine, like there's like the stuff that's been in those last couple pieces that have been quite negative are not, like, descriptors that I would use of anyone that I know who, you know, associates themselves with, I mean, particularly Wallace. Um, and so, like, there there was kind of a disconnect for me reading particularly the Electric Unicorn piece. Is that the... No, Electric... What, literature, the literature?
2: Electric Unicorn, yeah.
1: yeah. That That it just, like, I well, I don't... I've never heard that kind of association in such a pejorative negative way, so... And then, like to equate people who like an author with very awful and horrific behaviors, you know, is a bit of a category mistake, obviously. And the the logic of some of that stuff is another question. But I mean, yeah, I people I know who read Wallace are sort of just very very thoughtful and progressive, and uh, um, it didn't really resonate with my own experience. Um, so that was kind of my just initial and very personal initial reaction to them. Yeah, right. I have a lot to say. Which is not to detract from her experience or their experience Um, at all. Well,
0: I'm not afraid to to criticize someone's piece, though. I'm not going to criticize her experience, but that piece of writing about it and and the one in The Guardian, too, by um, what's her name? Jessa Crispin. Um, to me, if you put in the headline like "Men Recommend David Foster Wallace" to me, that's that's a non-starter because <laughs> yeah. because there's no equality in it, and you can't turn around and say women do this. Like I, I would never put a gender as exactly. yeah, like I'm addressing a piece to all women. Um, I think that that's bad form. But also, just as a reader, like you know, I I consider myself to be like really omnivorous and that i want to i want to read everything you know men women fiction non-fiction highbrow lowbrow fiction fiction translation poetry i tr- i really i'm just a general reader man i'll try to read as much as possible and like really pride myself on what i have read and not read and where my blind spots are and You are voracious, Matt Booker. So to criticize, you know, for me to take it personally is kind of absurd because I feel like, oh, you're (laughs) saying I haven't read enough women. And I'm like, I could, you know, I I feel like that's not true in my case. But then why am I even taking it personally? And, uh, you know, I'm aware of the fact, like, look, we're all, everyone on this call right now, we're white males. And Mm -hmm. that is an existential thing that we're not able to change. But I feel like... The people that I have met, and like Dave was saying, I could name other people who I consider to be friends of mine who are in this same game. And we all talk about David Foster Wallace all the time. Mm-hmm. And yet we also consciously try not to be hideous men. <laughs> yeah. You know, we consciously try to be good people, good citizens, and we're all fathers and we're all – we're not this – kind of stereotype that gets played out and to me that's a lot of my frustration is just that there's some stereotype that i feel like is projected at me yeah. and it is wrong and i i think that that's you know probably the root of my frustration with the pieces is not just like if you have a big enough like fandom there's going to be all kinds of backlash right sure. and i'm totally fine with that but yeah i i think in general i it's just like Dave said. It doesn't match my experience, and it doesn't match, you know, who I identify as as a human being. Mm. Lucas, your turn.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think I agree with both you guys, and it doesn't doesn't exactly fit onto my experience of, of boss fans and people at yeah. the conference and things. Mm-hmm. It seems to be um, a little, yeah, a little bit sort of trafficking in these these gross generalizations and stereotypes about what Walls readers are. Um, but at the same time, like, I think there is some, um, some sort of troubling material in, in Wallace's work. Um, sure. Oh yeah. It does need to be kind of worked through critically. Um, yeah. and I mean, he, yeah there's, but there's would it be interesting
0: if it wasn't you know if if it was no, some, exactly, yeah. <laughs> some perfect literature where right. it's like, well, for our time and place and our politics, he didn't offend anyone like, what fucking right. boring crap is that? <laughs> that sounds right. awful to me. It's like, you know what he he wasn't writing to be some perfect politically correct person who just met all of these little Twitter standards of what is a good person. It was, it was way more than that. And that's why there is a series published by Bloomsbury. And your book is the first one in that. series. you know, it's, I mean, like there's a lot of other writers who don't get this kind of treatment and, and it's not because they, you know, navigated this politics perfectly.
2: Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, and the kind of, the, the interesting stuff there is, is that he's he's very self conscious about the things that he's doing. And it feels like a lot of the criticisms that have been levelled at him, particularly in the Amy Hungerford piece.
3: Oh my um, god!
2: I mean, that's if just, just kill to me now. Drag yeah. up that again. Um, that's <laughs> stuff that Wallace has kind of anticipated and kind of have kind of thought deeply about and kind of internalized within the logic of, of the fiction in many ways, and and the kind of analysis that Hungerford does there, I think um it just just struck me as a little strange it's it's insane
0: it's insane to write a piece about a book you have not read or an author that you're going to criticize because you just do not like on a very surface level to me that displays your ignorance like there's a lot of authors i have not read and i would not dare to stereotype them or put them in some kind of category and then write an academic article about how much they suck <laughs>
1: yeah, as our yeah. friend Rob Short would say, like you got to do the homework. You got to if you haven't done the homework, like hold your comment until you have. Perhaps could be a more scholarly approach.
2: Yeah, although I'm sympathetic to the the broader like the argument of that chapter in her book, which is about the fact that you know critics can't read everything, like obviously, and sure. that you have to make certain decisions about what you do and don't read. Yeah. I mean, that, I'm totally on board with that. But yeah, using Wals's example. And as like such a whipping boy, um, based on these these very sort of secondhand ideas about about the kind of fancy he has and the kind of problems in the biography and things, that that just seems disingenuous to the extreme. But also it's just it's just kind of as you say, Dave. Maybe it's a category error as well because yeah. you know the the fiction and the the art um, is so so much more than a the person like a flawed individual can ever be. I think, yeah. and that it just kind of proves that that point in some ways like reading reading some of the stuff in the biography is kind of um disconcerting to say the least but oh absolutely. it doesn't yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to play into your encounter with with the work of art and i yeah. think that's the distinction that i that i would like to preserve a little bit more mm-hmm. between the biography and, and the work itself yeah that's good lucas
0: and that's a very mature response unlike a lot of the <laughs> other stuff that you know it's published to get clicks and and I get that too, but that's not what I consider, um, you know, good criticism. So, um, your book is, so f- again, th- <laughs> thanks for being with us tonight and, and talking about it. It's, it's been a blast and, and, and like any good conversation we have about Wallace, I feel like this, I could go another two hours easily. Yeah. yeah
2: totally. totally. <laughs> and, yeah. Thank you guys so much again for having me on and for reading the book and. Oh, thank you so much, it.
1: Lucas. Yeah, man. It was our pleasure. Uh, we also want to thank Bloomsbury for sending us review copies as well. They've been just sending us, like, they're like, here, have this, have this, have this. And so their generosity has been fantastic, and they're great to deal with. So thank you to your publishers as well.
3: Good.
1: Yeah. Uh, Tony McMahon wanted us to to mention that for the Melbourne conference coming up September 1st through 3rd, uh, they are still accepting paper submission Uh, Abstracts up until June 30th so if you are an Australian or you're nearby Australia you're planning to maybe hopefully travel there for this conference uh, there are still the call for papers open until the end of June so you still have a bit of time Uh, so take advantage of that Um, and we also have a conference coming up here in North America pretty quick here from June 8th, 9th and 10th in Normal, Illinois Matt your flights are booked my flights are booked I will be there it's happening. We're going. Uh, We are also on the schedule, which is, I believe, already out and published on the website, that we will be doing a live episode of The Great Concavity from that conference. So we're very much looking forward to that.
0: Uh, And Lucas, if people want to read more about your stuff, where can they find you? Are you on academia.edu? Are you on Twitter?
2: Yeah, I'm on academia. So a lot of my papers and work is up there. So yeah, just head on over there, or, or email me or something if you if you want more things. Awesome. Um, yeah, we can if include you your
1: Lucas, yeah we can maybe include your email address in the show notes or something or by request yep. perhaps people want to get in touch with you. Totally. Your call.
0: Your call on that one. <laughs> uh, and and I like I say, I really enjoyed a, a lot of the stuff that you um you know maybe won't put into a monograph but put into an article and and that stuff I find just um fascinating so keep it up man you you, you've done tremendous work uh in in wallace studies and also
1: i and also lucas i described i was talking with someone about you recently and we were talking about your scholarship being great and i said and also he's like probably the nicest guy i've ever met in my life too. totally
0: so, so nice
1: <laughs> <laughs> like hanging out with you and illinois at the conference two years ago was like such a such a pleasurable experience it was so great yeah that was hanging great out, was with such... you and dan and the other guys from sydney was awesome
0: yeah who did you have with you dan dixon and tony yes yeah, so
2: exactly dan dixon is another amazing wall scholar who yeah be making huge waves in years to come awesome.
0: um so
2: yeah he was there um tony was there um golly who else was there um, Nathan Seppel. Nathan Seppel. Yeah, found yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, so there were a few Australians. Yeah, a few of us there. It was a great. Yeah,
1: time. you guys are doing great work down there. Keep it up. That's good.
2: Thanks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I want to give a uh, I want to give a shout out to some folks in Victoria, BC. I went out for uh, for some beers about a month ago with some Wallace people in the community here, and uh, so Michelle Martin and Tim Persone and Christopher Douglas. Uh, I want to thank you guys for very riveting. Conversation about Wallace and other literature it was great. Uh, Christopher Douglas is a professor at the University of Victoria here, and we got in touch through a guy that I play netrunner with. He was like, "Oh yeah, this prof who teaches Wallace sometimes," and I was like, "Oh yeah, what's his name?" And I looked him up, up up on Twitter, and he follows us there. So I was like, "Oh cool, it'd be rad if we like went out for beer sometime." And uh, so I sent Chris a, an email, and he was like, oh, let me bring my PhD student. He's working on Wallace right now, doing his dissertation on him. And I also have this former student who was a student of Rob Shorts down in Florida. So she came over from Vancouver, and we just had this rad uh, evening together talking about this stuff. So thanks again to you guys. That was very cool. And um, – Matt, where can the people find us?
0: We're Concavity Show on Twitter or at Concavity Show on Instagram. And they can email us at concavityshow at gmail.com. We love getting the email. And I will say, if you still want stickers or uh, bookmarks, uh, hit me up on, on Gmail. Let me know.
1: Brad. And as usual, thanks to Robin O'Neill and Parquet Courts for their art and music. And uh, that has been, this has been episode 28. Thanks for listening. See you soon.
0: Turn on the white